Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I feel like the spirit of Bill Walton is here with us while recording this podcast. I can feel him in the studio with me. Can you feel him? I can feel him. I think that we are, quote, one of the most successful podcasts just packing in listeners here in the Big Apple. How do you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) The Big Apple. I like that you you say that we are uh, are based in the Big Apple. We are. That's where we started. We started out of a basement at WNYU. Shout out 89.1 if you live in New York and you're listening to this podcast now. Maybe afterwards you can throw on your FM radio or ask Uh the, the Lyft driver. If you're in a car, because you probably don't have a car. How about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Bill Walton makes everything better. I am 100% convinced. And that goes for baseball, perhaps especially baseball. For listeners who don't know these very esoteric references, Bill Walton announced an Angels-White Sox game in the last couple days. And uh, he treated it like every single play was Game 7 of the World Series tie ball game in the ninth inning. And I just, we strive for that kind of uh, excitement about all, as, all about all aspects of baseball. And it was so refreshing to hear him in the, in the booth saying stupid things like, uh, like on routine ground outs from Albert Pujols, the third baseman just fields it and slowly throws it to first. And he's yelling, what a defensive play. What an arm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing is, I turned on the game just because I wanted to watch the White Sox-Angels game, not because I knew he'd be in the booth. And so I turn it on, and I just hear some guy going on about how he saw a Grateful Dead concert here, and how this is a great place for events. You should have known whole, that right after that. this whole area was changed. I know, but I was like, I was like, who is this man talking about like his concert experiences? And then they cut to the booth, and I was like, ah, I see now. I understand. I get this. Honestly, Bill Walton and I think he was in in there calling it with Jason Benetti, right? Yeah. Bill Walton and Jason Benetti, the only two white guys we stand in an MLB broadcast booth. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I would take him over John Smoltz every single day of the week. Twice and on Sunday. I, and I say that without an ounce of irony. Bill Walton sounded like he was actually enjoying baseball because like, he knows... <laughs> Apparently, very little about baseball, but it was fine because he was learning about it in real time and enjoying every strikeout. Every, you know, a player would pop out to left field and he would act like it was about to be a walk off home run. You know, go get out of here. Oh, come on. So close. And Justin Upton is standing like on the edge of the infield dirt, like (laughs) not even close. He calls bunts brilliant. Yes, exactly. Routine throwouts to first base are uh, defensive web gems. Yeah. We're going to do a, a couple more takes on Bill Wallen and broadcast booths, and we're going to also share our opinion on the beautiful swing of Aristides Aquino. But uh, before we do that, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Basley. And this is Tipping Pitches. Mm-hmm. 
Alex, do you think Fox should really just give Bill Walton a blank check to announce the World Series? Um, yes, I do. Don't you? I mean, if it's only between Bill Walton and what we've gotten so far in the past, between boring-ass Joe Buck and uh, regressive-ass John Smoltz, <laughs> it feels like a pretty easy choice for me to make, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, Bill Walton is actually perfect for a baseball booth. I mean, I would, you know, I would watch him narrate me going to the store, you know? Like, yeah. I'd watch him do anything. But the game of baseball, just, like, the pace of it feels perfectly optimized for like his kind of long rambling stories and his very out there like train of thought processes uh just because you have so much downtime and it it allows him the opportunity to kind of just take an idea and run with it and i would much rather see that over like john smoltz complaining about how like pitchers are soft these days sure yeah well so bill wallen is kind of like gary cohen on lsd right like they tell all these long stories and they can fill all that airspace and it feels like one contiguous conversation between old friends because bill wallen makes everyone feel like they're an old friend because he's telling you this crazy story that you feel like only your close friend would tell you but that's just his personality so gregarious in that way but like the thing that i love so much about the mets broadcast booth and I think over the last few days or whatever that I've been watching them, they've been off SNY and, or at least in the last, at least a couple times in the last couple of weeks that I've been watching them, they've been off SNY and it just has a completely different feel. And I think so much of what you and I talk about is like expressing that love for the game, that like, just like verve and joyousness that Bill Walton fills all the time. I feel like sometimes when he's announcing basketball games, it's a little grating for people because like there's so much happening on the screen that they yeah. feel like he's like running over the play-by-play person a little bit. But you, what you're describing is kind of the opposite in baseball where it's like you have so much dead air to fill. You have all of this downtime that has been much talked about and much villainized. And if you can fill it with a story about the Grateful Dead that no one has ever heard before, I don't know how how many times Bill Walton could do this before he just started accidentally or intentionally repeating stories. But I feel like that's a cool like novelty moment. And maybe I don't need that in game seven of the world series, but maybe I need a little bit of that ethos in game seven of the world series. Yeah. Well, the thing is like, I feel like right now the, the makeup of broadcast booths skews so far to like one side of things and trying to build the perfect broadcast booth is such a hard needle to thread because it either comes off... I mean, you look at, like, the... Uh, what was it? The Home Run Derby that they had that alternate broadcast on? The, like, statsy one? Yeah, they've had it a few times for a few different events. All-Star Game, Home yeah. Run Derby, etc. Because, like, what MLB's choices, it seems like, are so black and white. They're either, like kind of old-timey, regressive, like, just more, like, angled to, like, play the game the right way and very, like, steeped in its history. Or, like, their forward-thinking broadcasts are very much, like, stats-heavy, like, not engaging at all. And it feels like this kind of weird dichotomy. And so to insert Bill Walton in there, who's just, like, a total wild card and is just going off into left field about things, is a nice change of pace, especially when it's so hard to actually get a broadcast booth that feels like it's organic in any sense of the word. I think one of the core challenges of 
a broadcast booth is that you have to know so much about so many different things and so many different teams. And especially in baseball, when it's like a three and a half hour game and there is just naturally a lot of downtime where people want to hear your voice. It's like you have to fill it with something. And so that dynamic in the booth has to be one where there people are not comfortable just leaving dead air. Because when I'm watching a baseball game and I'm, I'm hearing dead air, I, naturally my brain is just like signaling to me in, in bright flash, flashing red lights like this is a boring game. Because if they're not talking, like they're not entertained. Because, you know, when you and I go to a baseball game, we're sitting there next to each other and we're like, oh, shit, look at this guy. He's on my fantasy team. Or like, oh, man, look at this guy. Remember this guy? He's weird. That's funny. He He's bad now. You know, and like, obviously, you couldn't take our conversation. I'm not trying to <laughs> our, say like... Our conversations at baseball games are clearly very interesting. <laughs> no, no, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> obviously, you couldn't take our conversations and put them straight into a radio booth or a broadcast booth, it would not play because half the time we're just shitting on someone who used to be good and isn't good anymore. But I think it's that same kind of thing where like you need to have the dynamic between two people where like, or three people or whatever, where they they just can talk about anything. And it doesn't have to be the 3-1 count necessarily. It can be a memory or it can be uh, a time meeting a player I think that's something that, I mean, I I lean too heavily when we talk about broadcast booths. I lean too heavily on the Mets broadcast booth, but I do really feel like they are maybe the best broadcast booth in the country, and I feel lucky to watch them all the time, but there's never a dull moment for them. Like, I'll shut off my podcast for them, which is high praise in my world. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, other... Because Bill Walton's obviously not, like, the only personality like this that would fit in a booth like i would love to see other players from from baseball maybe who kind of have that similar like affability and ability to kind of like think off the cuff but like you put you know you look at like the nba's like players only broadcasts it's and those so things bad. are so dull they, ki- they killed I, that you know i know they, they stopped they stopped doing it because it was not good it was not a fun thing to watch and so to actually be able to put someone in there who can engage the viewer with stories from their past or whether they relate to the sport or not is a really tough thing to do. But I know that there are other players around baseball who I think would be able to convey that sort of thing, whether it's because of, um, y- you know, like I would... I would watch Ricky Henderson in a broadcast booth with like Reggie Jackson, just because their personalities are so huge. And I'm sure that they have a, a wealth of stories to share. It might get old um, by the, you know, fourth inning to keep hearing Ricky Henderson refer to himself in third person. But <laughs> like, I, I think that those types of players are ones who would fit very well in a broadcast booth, even if it's just for a game. How about trying to recreate a, uh, a crafty left-handed hitting first baseman in Keith Hernandez. Let's try to recreate him and pull Joey Votto into a booth. What do you say? Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. He would fit perfectly in a broadcast booth. And I hope that when his career ends, he, that is where he transitions to and not to an internal baseball role because I would like to be able to enjoy him for as long as possible. Yeah. Well, he's like someone who clearly thinks the game. He clearly has this innate sense of humor where he likes to fuck with people and he's also just like kind of whip smart. Like he's quick with his jokes on broadcasts and stuff like when he's done TV or video hits and stuff like that. He's like totally has the interviewer or whatever on a string. And I think to put that dynamic in a booth might fail, but it also could be really funny. Yeah. 
the thing is, as we talk about this, we're, we're fantasizing about putting enjoyable baseball players into the booth because it would be awesome. Um, and what we're inevitably going to end up with is in 15 years, it's just going to be Trevor Bauer in the broadcast booth Ugh, or Brett Gardner. And like, yeah, like you can see that happening, right? Yes. Like that is the direction that this will inevitably go in. But, you know, it's nice to dream. Dude, Dallas Braden was in the booth for a while. Dallas Braden is regularly in the A's broadcast booth. He's just one of their three broadcasters. Yep. That's so not great. History repeats itself. Yep. Um, last thing on this Bill Walton point. They really fucked up by not having him announce a game that had Yasiel Puig in it. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It was great to see him announce Mike Trout's home run, but to have him watch Yasiel Puig with his antics, his tongue, his hair dyed different colors, his he did Puig just did this thing today where he imitated that Little League World Series player players uh weird batting stance where they're squatting down to make the strike zone smaller, which side note, feels kind of illegal, but whatever. Uh <laughs> <laughs> to have Bill Walton just be like, who's this cat? You know, like, who who is this guy just having even more fun than I'm having out here? I, I want to meet this guy. Put them in a booth <laughs> together. <laughs> yes, I I absolutely agree. I'd love to see Bill Walton just talk about Yasiel Puig for nine innings. Although his, did you see Walton's uh, call of the Mike Trout home run? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where he's like, uh, he's like, that's Trout. He's, he's swimming upstream. He's avoiding <laughs> all the flies. <laughs> and we're just like, what is happening right now do you think he thought of that off top or do you think that he like thought about it ahead of time i'm certain that he thought about it off top (laughs) and then he was talking about how the white Sox should just go out and try to get this mike trout guy and it's like you know what thank you yes (laughs) we've been trying to get mike trout (laughs) bill walton come on tipping pitches bill walton with those Elite analytical takes. Bill Wallen. Do you think Bill Wallen also also thinks that the White Sox should just go get, um, you know, Aristides Aquino, uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Jordan Alvarez? Just get all these guys. They don't, the, the other teams don't know they're good, right? Yes, exactly. You know what? This that's this sounds like a pro labor take, if you ask me. Like <laughs> Bill Walton wants more competitive teams and wants players to get paid more. So I don't know. I'm on his side. It seems like Bill Walton would be pro union. Uh, 100%. We stand. Yeah. Uh, okay, speaking of all of these young, talented uh, laborers, I feel like the biggest story in baseball right now is Aristides Aquino. So can we talk about Aristides Aquino? Talk to me about Aristides Aquino. What's going on, man? Why are they still pitching <laughs> to him? Why aren't they walking him? He's hitting a home run in literally every game. And how, how, how? You're the Reds expert. We've had so many Red stories this year. Honestly, I feel I blessed. Yeah. I don't know. They keep giving him pitches that are in the strike zone and he says thank you and he hits them over the fence. And you're right that they should probably stop doing that. Although they're they're already intentionally walking him. Like in high leverage situations, he's already... (laughs) They got to like a 1-0 count on him the other day. I don't remember who they were playing. Maybe like the Pirates or something like that. And the team was like, yeah, we'll just give him first base. It's open. We don't want to deal with this right now. It's unbelievable, dude. And... I hate to use the phrase locked in because it's stupid player speak that we try to avoid as much as possible, but is he just seeing the ball well, Alex? Do you think he's just taking it one pitch at a time? <laughs> the thing is, like, like at what point does it just become acceptable to like you like there's no other way of explaining this sort of thing. I mean, you could you could just uh you could statistically analyze this to death and be like, well, technically, uh, there was a 0.07 chance that 
uh, some player would inevitably reach 10 home runs in 16 games and yeah. he just is the next statistic. But like, it's more fun to be like, he's the fastest person to do this ever in the history of baseball. And I have no idea how the fuck he's doing it, but it's sure exciting to watch. Yeah. Also, I think it works narratively because he had this swing tweak, right? And we're talking all about how player development is better than it's ever been. And there are certain things that um, teams have been have been able to identify about players and and change them and make them into better players. So we talk about all of these self-made players like Justin Turner, you know, the, the, the typical names, Josh Donaldson, that get listed. And you look at Aristides Kino and he has this like funky batting stance that he did not have one calendar year ago. And all of a sudden he's launching home runs um, every single plate appearance pretty much it feels like or at least once every game. And it fits the narrative. And so we like to talk about things that fit the narrative, right? But um, I don't know. I was watching an interview after one of his games the other day and the interviewer was basically just like, how do you keep unleashing on the first pitch that you see that's good? You know, like he's just crushing. If a pitcher misses their spot once, he's just crushing it. And he's like, you know, I've been trying to, uh, I've been trying to wait for the pitcher to make a mistake. I know they're bound to make a mistake eventually. And uh, I've just been trying to lay off the stuff that I know that I can't hit out of the ballpark. And I'm like, this is such a mature approach to hitting in your first season of baseball. And you come up and you have so much, not first season of baseball, but your first season in Major League Baseball. And you come up and you have so much success immediately, but you're able to still like keep that approach. Use the analytics that you've been taught and like not get too excited about trying to hit every single pitch out. Like it was just 18 months ago where I was complaining about how Ahmed Rosario couldn't lay off a slider and he was hitting like 220. And this guy comes up and he's hitting like, his OPS is like 1400. <laughs> I mean, there's a part of me that is like, he probably has no idea how it's happening either, right? Definitely like, not. I mean, you can, you can go out there and talk about just waiting for the pitcher to make a mistake, but you're doing that every at bat. Every major league hitter is doing that sort of thing. Uh, and if they all could just, if that was the secret, then there just wouldn't be a game of baseball. Because well, they wouldn't say it out loud in interviews after the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's obviously a certain amount of like trying to un, uh, trying to explain the unexplainable, but it, yeah, it's it, it's such it's a bizarre stance, right? Like he basically stands facing the pitcher right to start yeah. out like he's it's the most open stance you've ever seen and then he when the pitcher delivers he like takes his step and closes up um but i don't know maybe maybe more players should try doing these funky stances you were mentioning puig imitating the the little league leaguer crouching down mm-hmm. like let's like give me more of that maybe that's the secret you know just try weird shit that's the secret <laughs> i mean kind of <laughs> well so donaldson right his tweak was he closed his stance. Yeah. So as Aquino did the exact opposite, he opened it up like in an extremely aggressive way. Well, Donaldson's, Donaldson stands closed. That's how I used to stand when I played because I had a thing where I would like step out too early and like open my shoulder up too soon. And it's little tweaks like this where like if you were someone who was like throwing your shoulder out too soon, like 20 years ago, they were probably just like, he's not a good hitter. Maybe they were trying to make that adjustment 20 years ago, but players might not have been quite as receptive to it, and now now they are. And you can see it in Aquino, in Aquino's swing, where it's like he has an unbelievable plane on his swing, and the reason that the ball is jumping off of his bat like that is because 
he's just also super strong, dude. His swing reminds me of, in terms of like raw strength and power and uh, like speed through the correct swing plane, not to be like too nerdy with us right here, but it looks a lot like Acuna. <laughs> yeah. So Aquino is incredibly fun to watch. And um, you and I are f- famous for talking about players that are just fun for us to watch. <laughs> um, but he's he's part of a larger trend, right? He's part of a larger trend of extremely young, extremely talented, and extremely successful hitters. Um, our pal, my pal, Ben Lindbergh, wrote for The Ringer this past week about how younger hitters are better than they've ever been. You know, He, he made a bunch of different statistical claims to prove how um, younger hitters are hitters under 25 and just hitters in their 20s in general are worth more war than they've ever been. They have better they have a better WRC plus as a whole than they've ever been than they've ever had and it's being powered by guys like Aquino, but more so guys who have been up for this whole year. Guys like Acuña, um Soto, uh Tatis Jr specifically, <laughs> RIP by the way. We we uh we will miss the rest of the 2019 Fernando Tatis Jr. He's out for the rest of the year with a back injury. Um I wanted to talk about this article with you, not because I don't agree with it, obviously, because Ben is one of the best baseball writers alive, but because I want to take it a step further, because obviously we have seen um, quantitatively and qualitatively how much better young players are than they've ever been. And I think that's probably because there was an inefficiency in, in young players, right? Like if you can make a young player better earlier you have them for longer. You amass more value over the time of their contract and over the time of their team-friendly contract. Teams have obviously found another inefficiency in terms of player development. So, at, whereas before they thought that they couldn't make player, they couldn't make superstars out of average players, now they feel like they can, and they are. And obviously, Ben has written an entire book about this. This was a core theme of Moneyball about how you couldn't turn guys into superstars in the minors. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because I always want to talk to you about how the talent of young players affects labor in baseball. Um, do you think this presents a, a an unsolvable problem in the near future that will have to be fought over at the collective bargaining table? Because for me, it's like, if young players are just going to continue to get better and better as player development continues to get better and continues to get implemented earlier and earlier well, then we're just going to see more drastically underpaid players year by year. And we're already seeing that with guys who are fighting down to their last arbitration dollar and still not getting what they're worth. Or, in the case of uh, Ronald Acuna, guys who are taking extremely team-friendly deals early in their contract, early in their career, because they know that they need to secure this money short-term and sacrifice a lot of money long-term. So is this an unsolvable problem for us? I don't know that it's an unsolvable problem, although I think certainly with every day, it seems like the MLB Players Union has more and more ammo and more and more evidence that young players should get paid more. Like To me, it just feels like it's ever more relevant and in theory, ever more probable that young players could and should start getting paid what they're worth. I mean, and that's with the assumption that there is a that the labor union is like competent at what they're doing and is actually fighting for this sort of thing and we have no idea but like tony clark should literally have a file in his desk 
that is just players getting exploited by owners, right? And you can just like put Jordan Alvarez in there. You can put Pete Alonso in there. You can put uh, Vlad Jr. in there. Matt Chapman. Um, Matt Chapman. And you can take the contracts too, right? Ozzy Albies, Ronald Acuna. Um, each one of these is a little piece of evidence towards the fact that these players are providing their teams with an outsized amount of value um, when juxtaposed next to what they are getting paid. And it's not hard to, like, it shouldn't be this hard to make the argument of being like, these players should just be paid more. Like, they literally are some of the best players in baseball already. Why isn't their pay commensurate to that? It's not like this is really a different conversation from from anything we've discussed here before, but it's it's like, why is the union not beating the drum over this repeatedly, right? And being like, these these are literally the best players in in baseball. Like, it should seem obvious. It should seem easy at this point, you know? Yeah, definitely. It, it just proves like over and over again how much of the idea of like a meritocracy and capitalism is a sham. <laughs> um, because... We've talked about a million times on this show, like the idea that you have to be so unbelievably better than your value for the first half of your career to recoup that value in the second half and how that's like a fading away idea because you get you get all of these great players like, um, you know, Machado and Harper and stuff and they came up in this offseason and they had to fight for like the value that they deserve even for the next seven years, let alone the value that they should have gained for the past seven years. You know, like when we talk about the Harper contract or we talk about the Machado contract, we're like, or or even the Mike Trout contract, right? We're saying that a lot of the people who are doing the analysis of it are like, he is projected to be worth this many war over the next 10 years of the contract. And we say, okay, how many millions of dollars is that worth to the team? And it's still a val. It's still a bargain for the team, even for the next ten years. And we're not even all of that labor that was surplus value over the last six years of their contract when they were under arbitration and before that when they were under complete team control. That's just that's just gone. They just never have any chance of recuperating that, and it's not really going to anyone else besides the owner right now. So, I I agree with you in that. Um, I think these are all really good examples of uh, examples that the union can use in the future. And I hope that they do use. I just resent the fact that like now all of the best players in baseball are on these tiny little contracts. Not all of them, you know, because there's still the Trouts. There's still the Machados. There's still the Harpers, et cetera, et cetera, who are on big contracts. There's still the DeGroms and Scherzers, et cetera. But now like a, a majority of baseball players are still on their rookie contracts or still on arbitration type contracts. And the other ones who are not, all we talk about is their contract. The only thing that the general baseball populace, or maybe I'm misreading this because of Twitter, there's a decent chance of that. But the only thing that people want to say about Harper, the only thing that people want to say about Machado is like there's always reply guy. And he always wants to say, sure, he hit a home run, but is he worth uh, $33 million this year? And it's like, the paradigm has like actually totally shifted because there are so many good players who are who are making so little compared to these other guys that now it really feels like fans just expect the GM to just like 
penny pinch. And I think the the Molly Knight tweet from this past week, which you wanted to bring up and talk about, is a really good example of that. Like that language, that overarching theme has now just like pretty much infected all levels of baseball discourse. Yeah. So this is a, I wanted to do a very quick uh, bad take reading, a uh, great segment, which we haven't done in an extremely long time. Uh, but, uh, but this is just a tweet, easy little, easy little tweet. Uh, and it's from Molly Knight, who writes for The Athletic. She wrote a book about the Dodgers called The Best Team Money Can Buy, um, well-known baseball writer. And she tweeted, kind of weird people don't take a player's salary in consideration when making judgments the most valuable player in baseball. Cody Bellinger is only making 605000 this year. Christian Yelich is making $7 million. Mike Trout is making $33 billion. And <laughs> there's so I'm much sorry. to Sorry, I tried, tried to keep it together. <laughs> oh, but it's just like, what, what are we trying to do here? Like, that's, like, what award do we think we're giving? Is it, like, the best return on investment award yeah. like is it made the owners the most money award like that's uh-huh. not it's not the discussion that we're having here i'm sure it's the discussion that owners are having owners have this in front offices every day but when we're talking about the best player in baseball or the most valuable player in baseball i don't want it to be which player is getting exploited the most that's no fun Maybe we should be having that conversation. Maybe we absolutely should be giving that award to be able to have these larger discussions. Yeah, we should be giving that award in the form of more money. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But like, (laughs) it's a really good example, I think, of the ways in which pro-ownership language has been kind of co-opted by journalists and and fans alike because i think there are probably a lot of fans who feel this same way right this is like this is inherently just advocating for players making less money right should cody bellinger refuse a big contract because he think that it, he thinks that it might preclude him from winning MVP, right? Like, should Mike Trout be like, "Oh yeah, I'll take five hundred thousand dollars this year because I'll have a better shot of winning MVP"? What the fuck? Then some, what does that do? Then Phil Mushnick would be like, "Why is Mike Trout winning MVP on a team that didn't make the playoffs?" There's always a take, you know. There's always yeah. a bad take that can preclude us from talking about the best players in baseball and talking about them as the best players in baseball, right? There's always a reason. Yeah, I just find it weird uh, the way that like the collective baseball fandom's brains are just broken and conditioned to want to be like financiers or like an accountant. And I just don't get it. Like we don't want to do numbers in the rest of our lives. Why do we want to try to crunch numbers when it comes to players contracts? Why we, why like, is everyone who watches baseball just balancing budgets from nine to five? I don't get it. It's like, why do you even care about this? And The more confounding part of that to me, the other half of that is baseball is a sport with no salary cap. So if you want to make the argument in the NFL, how much more valuable a lesser contract guy is because there's a salary cap for a a litany of different reasons. And we're not a football podcast. We're certainly not a football podcast. We're not a basketball podcast. And we're definitely not a football podcast. But the salary cap in those two sports makes that smaller contract, the Cody Bellinger equivalent contract, clearly more valuable. And I get why fans 
maybe think a little bit more about it in those sports. But in baseball, it makes no fucking sense at all because it's not your money. It's not your money. And do you think Red Sox fans care that David Price is making $225 million or whatever, but he he pitched well in the World Series last year, but they 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 value it less because he's more expensive to John Henry? No, of course they don't care. It's just a weird obsession for baseball fans to think about because maybe their team didn't win this year. I think like the most ironic part about this is the fact that she wrote an entire book, Molly Knight, wrote an entire book about spending money to win at baseball. Like literally about the Dodgers who just poured loads and loads of money into their team to try and get better. And then to come away with that and be like, we should reward players for not getting paid. I'm just like, do you see, do you understand like the disconnect here? I, I think my, my favorite part of about this was not the, uh, not the original tweet, but her follow up where she said, uh, whenever I win my fantasy baseball league, it's always because some late round pick came out of nowhere to dominate. A few years ago, it was Aaron Judge, a 24th round pick who came in second to Mike Trout, a first round pick. I expected Trout to dominate. Judge put me over the top. And to that, I say, do you think this is fucking fantasy baseball? Yeah. Is that what you think is going on right Uh now? Like, this isn't, that is not how you literally vote for the most valuable player. And it's asinine to use that as your logic to, to put out this, like, MVP voting idea into the world. And it further supports the idea that I think every fan just like wants to play GM, right? And this is, you know, we're dunking on Molly Knight for this, but she's far from the only person to put this idea out there, right? Every, this is why fantasy sports exist, right? Is because you like the idea of tinkering with team and, and putting money, putting money into it, whether it's real money or fake money. Um, you want to put together the very best team. And so you draft Aaron Judge in the 24th round and you're like, he was my most valuable player because I didn't have to spend anything on him. But it's like, these are real people who we're talking about. This is money that goes to owners in the end. Like, Here's why the, do yeah. we care? Here's the difference. If you're in a fantasy baseball league, number one, most of you who are, who are listening to this podcast are probably in the snake league because you, you're amateurs. Number two, What? (laughs) Snake leagues are dumb. Everything should be an auction. Number two, if you're in an auction fantasy baseball league, say you have a $275 auction salary cap or whatever, that doesn't exist in real baseball. That cap that you can only spend to the maximum of, that $275 that you and your friends and your fantasy baseball league can afford, that doesn't exist in real baseball. A billion dollars is an amount of money that no human can or should ever spend in a one lifetime. And so these a lot of these people are billionaires 10 times over. I just think that people just don't have a concept of that. They just don't have a concept of how much money truly these people have and could spend and rake in and the profit and the, the return on investment of even owning a team. And the rights deals and the TV and the local the local broadcasting and all of this stuff that makes them so much money that everybody could afford to pay all of these players what they're worth in the first eight years of their career. There's such a false equivalency between 
tinkering within your fantasy team or tinkering within your video game team or tinkering in your own mind as an as an as a GM or an owner versus what it's actually like to be an owner and to have all of this money that you could be paying to the people who are making your product so valuable, but you choose not to. And you choose not to because it's been negotiated in this in the collective bargaining agreement that you don't have to. And the owners are never going to do the right thing when given the opportunity if they don't have to. Which is why I hope, like you're saying, I hope Tony Clark is amassing a fucking filing cabinet full of manila folders of all of these examples that we are yelling into the void about. Because then hopefully it won't have to be yelling into the void. Hopefully at some point down the line, the service time manipulation title belt, the team-friendly extensions that we've yelled about, all of these different things that the teams do that are just truly craven, that's just truly craven behavior. Hopefully that will all not be for nothing. Yeah, I can't emphasize how exhausted I am by having these conversations. Like, I'm so tired of it. (laughs) No, and it's like, it's. I think it's no fault of either of us, but like, it's so like blatant that it feels disingenuous to not have these conversations. But at the same time, it's like, you know, every week on this podcast, it ends up just kind of being like, why the fuck aren't we paying these guys more? Like, shouldn't we just be doing that? (laughs) This is like clear cut answer. Yeah. And so my plea to owners is just fucking just do it guys. Come on. I, it'd be so easy and it would mean so little to your overall bottom line. Like just, just for my sake, for our sake, you know? This goes double for minor leaguers as well. Yeah, obviously. That goes without saying. I think the best description of this podcast every week is just, we have the time. You and I have the time to yell about the same thing over and over again every week. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to do our weekly segment, Three Up, Three Down, which seems like it always comes after a rant about labor. But... Hey, you tuned into Tipping Pitches, so uh, we'll be back right after this. Alex, you're going to lead us off this week. You're going to tell me the three things that are going off your list. Three up, three down. What do you got for me? All right. First off my list, team's approach to the deadline. I I made a passionate case a couple weeks ago for teams staying put or just like being comfortable, like not committing to a direction. But I'm, I I take it back. They should have gone all in at the deadline. Uh, for who? Next. I don't know, Zach Wheeler, Zach Grenke. That's who they should have gotten. Assorted Zachs. Yeah, exactly. Give me all the Zachs. Next off my list, uh, baseball cards. I I opened them and then I packed them away. And I think that's how baseball cards work. So you know what? I got them for the future, though, if I ever want to look at wrong predictions about Carlos Carrasco. Corey Seager. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's for your posterity, bro. It's yes. For posterity. You're supposed to pass those down. Yeah, so that true. your kid can look at wrong predictions about Carlos Carrasco, <laughs> a pitcher that your kid will probably have no idea ever even existed. Yep, pretty much. Uh, last on my list, uh, Ramon Laureano's arm. 
which I guess I think was still on my list if my um, annotations of this segment were correct. But uh, <laughs> but he's injured, and I just haven't thought about him in a little while. But rest assured, Blasphemy. when he comes back, he's gonna he's gonna do something to blow me away again. So, what's coming off your list this week? Uh, last week I talked about Pride Nights. I haven't watched a baseball game with a Pride Night since then. Um, so that's coming off my list. Second thing, I think I think this is still on my list. This was from a while ago. Um, it was that Wall Street Journal article where it, uh, the former commissioner of baseball was arguing that players should have stakes in teams. Um, it feels a little inappropriate to take this off my list in the same, basically in the same <laughs> breath as our previous segment. However, I forgot that that was a thing that I read and we talked about on this very podcast. Uh, so I'm taking that off my list. And then the third thing, also in light of our previous segment, is that I'm taking off my list is pitcher dominance because uh, the pitchers ain't dominating these young hitters, Alex. Gotta say, coming up next, I'm gonna tell you why pitchers are not as dominant as I thought they were three weeks ago. <laughs> uh, so that's coming off my list as well. Those are my three. Kick us off. What's up? What's up this week? All right, first on my list this week, I've been thinking a lot about bad umpires. And I've been thinking a lot about bad umpires. Welcome because, to baseball Twitter, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, for real. Because uh, baseball Twitter was in a tizzy this past week because yeah, Cubs were. Cubs hitter Tony Kemp, Tony was, Kemp, uh, Tony Kemp, our guy. That's was, my guy. He's not on the Astros anymore. Oh, they nope, DFA'd him. Yeah, yeah. Tough beat for Tony. Tough beat for Tony. Uh, and even tougher beat when he was called out on a strike three and a pitch that was like maybe a couple feet up and outside of the strike zone pitch uh, thrown by Hector Norris of the Philadelphia Phillies. And uh, it was not even close. And some were claiming that it was possibly the worst called strike of all time. I, I don't know if that's true. I literally, I haven't been alive that long. I can't make the claim and none of you can make that claim. I'm sorry, but it was extremely bad. And it feels like it was just in the, it, it feels like it was the latest in a long line of kind of people bringing up these like clips of really bad called strikes. Uh, Rob Friedman, aka Pitching Ninja, on Twitter has Shout been out. doing has been doing that a lot more and posting clips of really bad like called strikes with the little like robot emoji. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it's like extremely easy to dunk on umpires and be like, "Look at that called strike! You should have gotten this." blah, 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 whatever. But a part of me, like, I see this, and my first instinct is not to think that we need robot umpires. Like, I'm just kind of like, why are we thinking of automating this job rather than just teaching the umpires to be better or get new umpires? Like, I don't really understand. This is like, not to be like, this is a labor issue, because that's the theme of this podcast, but like, this is maybe we issue. Sh- maybe we shouldn't just automate their jobs away. I can't believe I'm siding with the the umpires union right now on anything. But honestly, like, why don't we just get better umpires or teach them to be better? Alex, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself advocate on our podcast on behalf of umpires. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Remember how much umpire content we used to do? Yeah. Remember the whole the armband thing? Uh-huh. Yeah. The uh the the ass in the jackpot thing um we've had a lot of umpire segments over the years and i gotta say i'm with you on this one i think robot umpires are stupid i think it's going to be 
um, incredibly dumb when we have a person out there just to make one call out or safe at home and the rest of the time they're looking at a fucking pager and decide that's deciding what's a ball and what's a strike for them. It just is a... At the risk of drawing too many conclusions out of this trend towards automation of the umpire position, it's like the latest in a string of like obsessions over minute details and perfections about baseball. And it's like the same part of the brain that uh, wanting to optimize value per dollar spent comes from. And it's the same part of the brain that instant replay comes from. It's like all of these things that really actually kind of bother me about baseball and I think go against the spirit of the game. And uh, I got to say, some of these phrases coming out of our mouths in the last like two minutes, like spirit <laughs> of the game and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, arguing on behalf of umpires and stuff. We're, we're coming dangerously close to sounding like we could be like wearing Cardinals jerseys, rooting hard for fucking Mike Matheny. But at the risk of all of that, it is kind of, I think, against the spirit of the game. And also... There's plenty of uh, research that's been shown that just like younger umpires are better. So let's just continue to train younger umpires. Also, you know what I think could benefit the umpire position? Diversity. Because most of the time when we complain about umpires on this show, it's not really about balls and strikes. It's about like completely inappropriate behavior that demonizes Latin players. Yeah, there is a, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot that could be tackled. But uh, I'm... I am very, I'm confident in my position knowing that we have at least one ally in this fight, and that would be Clayton Kershaw, who, with regards to robot umpires, said, quote, I hate it. I think it's stupid. So love my guy. Clayton Kershaw, come on tipping pitches to, uh, to rant about robot umpires. That would be entertaining. Do you think if uh, we played uh, tipping pitches out loud in the Dodgers clubhouse and Clayton Kershaw heard it, he would like it? What do you think Clayton Kershaw would think? <laughs> Something tells me he probably wouldn't. But, you know, I we can dream, right? Yeah. We need to tear down our ally in this umpire fight right now. I'm going to move yeah. on. How about yeah. that? Yeah, what's up for you this week? Mike Trout just tied Derek Jeter in career war. Mike Trout is 27. Just turned 27. And uh, Derek Jeter's career is a myth. And Mike Trout is much better and more important to baseball. That's my take. This is not our corner to talk about Mike Trout passing Hall of Fame players on the career war list. This is uh, the Effectively Wild corner. Uh, Sam Miller writes this every month about which different Hall of Famers Mike Trout has passed in the last month, which is fucking nuts that he passes someone every month and, uh, and continues to do that so that Sam Miller can get an article out of it every month. Shout out to him. It's a great idea. <laughs> I'm all for writers making their lives easier. Mike Trout, man, swimming upstream, avoiding flies, <laughs> dodging Derek Jeter. And there was a story that I saw that was like Derek Jeter was one of Mike Trout's um, career uh, idols. Like growing up, he really idolized Derek Jeter. And um, to that, I say, shoot higher, Mike Trout. You're already better than him. Yeah. Like, who do you even idolize in baseball? Like, once you're the greatest baseball player of all time, like what do you do? What do you do? Like, it's like who do you think like Louis Armstrong idolized as like a trumpet player? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I kind of, I kind of start to get why A Rod would just hang photos of him on the wall because he was like, "I'm the best." Like, what? And he acknowledges that about himself. Like, maybe, uh, maybe Mike Trout should have a little less humility. Mike Trout idolizes like Weatherman. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. 
Love, love, love Mike Trout. Okay, next up. All right, next up on my list is uh, national anthem standoffs in baseball. I think that the whole concept of them perhaps came to national prominence back in 2013 when Scott Van Slyke and Joe Kelly participated in their own little standoff following the national anthem in uh, in game six of the NLCS. It's uh, to explain what an anthem standoff is. It's just where like you stand there with your hat over your heart and you refuse to leave from your position following the national anthem. And you're like facing off against someone on the other team. And it's a very bizarre thing that for some reason we get a lot of excitement out of. But, uh, but in the, uh, in the minor leagues this past week, in, uh, in short season A, there was a national anthem standoff that lasted the entire game. This is a uh, muck dogs first baseman Harrison Dinicola. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And, uh, and black bears catcher Ryan hog. Again, just guessing here. <laughs> um, stood there for a nearly three hour game. And all this to say that I don't even think that this is that interesting, but I think that there is nothing more representative of baseball's like jingoistic quality than two guys standing there being like, I respect respect the flag more than you, bro. I'm going to stand for my national anthem for three fucking hours. Yeah, that's how much I respect this country. I just, it's like a little too on the nose and I kind of love it. Stands until he passes out and dies for the, for the flag, bro. Yeah, literally. Like this feels like the kind of thing that a fan does, you know, like the, the, the fan at the Mets game who's wearing the U.S. Army cap and like mm-hmm. kind of like looks at you weird or says something to you if you don't stand for the anthem or something. You yep. know, the, the fan who like stands for the anthem in his own home when he's watching a baseball game because he's like, that's just how much I'm a flag respecter. Like three hours. It's fine. No one cares. This is dumb. Sit down. We were at a Mets game, I think you were there, uh, with a fellow friend and friend of the podcast, Kevin Jang. And he it was during the uh, Kaepernick anthem protests. And Kevin knelt at a Mets game, to which he got the shit booed out of him. And it was like on the concourse too. It wasn't even like at our seats or anything. It was like where there was a bunch of people walking by. And whatnot, and Kevin knelt, and I don't know what motivated him to kneel on this specific day. I can't feign to be inside Kevin's head. However, yeah, man, baseball fans—they want to just—they uh, want to respect that flag more than the other fans. And honestly, they do. You know what? Re- respect to to baseball fans. Who, respect to the respect. You could play. <laughs> you could play the national anthem between every inning, or God Bless America between and every inning, and, so and baseball fans would stand every single fucking time. Yeah, totally no brainwashing going on. All right, let's yeah. move on. <laughs> All right, what's up for you? Um, here's a quote from the manager of my baseball team. Quote: <laughs> I bet if you looked, eighty-five percent of our decisions would go against the analytics. End quote. That's it, man. That's what's that's, up on my that's list. The whole this week. thing. <laughs> what the hell? First of all, again, second shout out of the pod to Effectively Wild, but Sam and Ben pointed out that like that's just objectively not true. Because like the basic decisions in baseball that get made, like 
trotting out Jacob deGrom every five days, batting Pete Alonso regularly, all these different things that you do just innately. Those are technically analytics decisions too, because analytics supports all of the good things that you also still like about baseball while also trying to change some of the fringe things. So I think clearly Mickey Calloway is only talking about like those fringe scenarios where you have to go with your gut or go with analytics. I just, just like for like a maybe a half second, be self-aware. You're pandering to the wrong group, my man, because it's 2019. Everybody wants their team to feel like the smartest team. As evidenced by the conversation that we had earlier, there's a certain element of we think our team is smarter if they're manipulating labor, right? And that's not even what I'm talking about here, but I'm talking about like we want our team to appear like they have their act together and they're on the cutting edge. And by saying 85% of my decisions go against the analytics, that's just irresponsibly, it's an irresponsibly high percentage of decisions, Mickey. Just you don't have to say that. You could just say the boilerplate line that everybody says all the time when they get asked about analytics and in the sense that like, it's good to have more information. Uh, We use that when it feels right. But other times you just have to make a human decision. Bullshit, 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 bullshit. Do I need to media train Mets managers? Do what? I'm not even a media trainer. I, I've never done PR before, but it, this, this feels like low-hanging fruit. Am I crazy? If you're the opposing team, like, isn't this like your favorite thing to hear in the world? You're like, he doesn't pay attention to analytics. Like, holy shit, we're just going to go by analytics the entire game next game. And Mickey Calloway is sitting there being like, um, my gut is telling me that Dilson Herrera needs to pinch hit right here against Dilson Herrera uh, in Ken the Giles. Reds farm system. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> the The sheer lack of self-awareness that it takes to kind of come out and publicly make that sort of comment, especially given like, kind of the turmoil that has plagued your entire managerial career? Like, was it analytics to... You could say anything next, and it would be able to apply. Literally anything. Um, Was it analytics to try to fight a reporter in the clubhouse? (laughs) Literally. Was it analytics to, like, put in Seth Lugo and let him give up five runs instead of sending out... I don't know who is it, Steven Matz for the seventh inning or something like that. Like, clearly, your decisions are not analytics based because they don't always work. Like, you're not, like, you make the decisions, and I'm like, yeah, you clearly didn't go with what the report said you should have gone with. Nope. Although, is there a report? TBD. Nobody really knows. What is the Mets analytics department? It's one of the smallest and latest breaking analytics departments. In all of baseball. Yeah. They up have, until a couple years ago, like, didn't exist. No. It was this just the, Sandy Alderson being like, I remember a time when I was the GM of the A's. Right, and then no, nothing No else. Sandy Alderson slander on this podcast. Okay. All right. Fine. No Seth Lugo slander then. Right back at you. <laughs> Don't you remember last week when I said Seth Lugo is the Chris Davinsky that I wanted for Christmas in 2016? Come on. <laughs> Uh, I think we're on your last one. Last one on my list. And this one is very important to me. And it really affected me when I read about this on Friday. Pete Buttigieg came out as being against the DH. Bobby Wagner, I want to turn to you right now and say, how does it feel to be on the same page with Pete Buttigieg in this case? He said he was against the DH? Yeah. 
I thought he said he was for the DH. No, 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 no. He's anti-DH. Yeah. This really Explain hurts your case. position. <laughs> Fuck, man. Maybe I am just a neoliberal. Picture me just walking aimlessly around Manhattan, like having an argument in my head with Pete Buttigieg about the DH and being like, no, you don't understand. It's not entertaining baseball. And in my head, he's just like arguing back at me about how he was like, he's a war vet and he like doesn't like this soft shit and something like that. The whole time he's like uh, taking apart and putting together a gun in yeah. front of you. <laughs> yeah, literally. Um. Wow. There has never been a sentence that explains how broken your brain is than the one that you just spoke to me about aimlessly walking around Manhattan having a fictional argument in your head with Pete Buttigieg about the DH. Yeah, well, I I won. So, uh, you know, this is the centrist position, I think, is uh, is anti-DH, right? Because it's like, oh, we just need to make things back like to the way they were. Yeah, we don't want like, things to change. Yeah, pretty much. You just had the centrist position about umpires, though. I think, I feel like... No, you had the of the people position. You're right. You had the I almost work, feel like pro I, worker. You're just I feel like, pro worker, man. <laughs> I feel like that's one of those positions that's so far right, it's left, you know? Like no one <laughs> no one likes umpires. Like supporting like supporting guns so that like militias on the left can get them and start the revolution. It's yes, so far exactly. right that it's left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, this podcast is something else. I'm voting for people to judge. Okay, my final thing. I thought that I was going to have something to say about it by this point in the podcast, but uh, I don't really have a great thing to share about it, but it's just the Little League World Series for better and for worse. Um, about a year ago, we talked about the Little League World Series. I think we did a segment about how how problematic and inaccessible Little League is for a lot of reasons. Um, but then also the Little League World Series rolls around every year and it kind of papers over a lot of those things because it's really fun for a lot of people to watch. You, you can't deny like, the just pure childlike joy of like watching a kid hit a home run and celebrate with his friends because it reminds you of when you did it. Um, if you're a parent, it reminds you of um, when your kid was that age or maybe your kid is that age now. And there is a lot of, re- there are a lot of reasons to love the Little League World Series. There are also a lot of reasons to question some of the uh, ways that people get there and some of the uh, exclusionary practices of Little League across the United States and across the world. Um, but, you know, we're not experts in that, despite the fact that we wanted to do a special series about Little League for the last two years and we've just never gotten around to it. Maybe by me saying it on air, um, some listener at some point will call us out on it um, and we'll do it for next year. But I think kind of similar to like, I have the same feeling about the Little League World Series as I do about like the beginning of every baseball season, right? Because like we spend all off season having these uh, debates about is baseball headed in the the wrong direction, like all the free agency stuff that we've had to grapple with over the last couple of years. And we have all this time to think about those things. And then the season starts and it's just like you and I are recording a podcast, watching the same A's game, talking about it for 20 minutes in between segments. And it's like, damn. Baseball's pretty great, man. And I have the same thing about the Little League World Series. It's like every, like every year leading up to it, I'm like, man, this is the year I'm going to be like, ah, damn, the Little League World Series, like a lot of really problematic shit going on there. But, uh, and then it comes on and like some kid like cries as he's rounding the bases, hitting a home run. And I'm just like on in a puddle on the ground, you know? <laughs> yeah, it is a, it is a pretty magical, uh, it is a pretty magical event. And there was, I've seen this take now actually a few times on Twitter 
it just like in the last few days. And I, I referenced one from the tipping pitches account, but I saw it pop up a bunch of different places. A bunch of people talking about how like, you know, like the sportsmanship has like gone a little too far in little league. Like don't high five. You're the person you just gave up a home run to like, like maybe these kids should like be a little more like competitive and act like they're there to like win and stuff like that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're telling these 12 year olds should just like cool it. Like, yeah, I want to see a 12 year old cleat the opposing player. I just want them to really like just get dirty. Like there should be more 12 year old little league world series brawls. If we're being honest, like they're just not competitive enough. Like just suck it up. Just let the kids have fun. Let the kids play. How about that? Let the kids play. What better way to end this fucking weird rambly podcast that we just put together? I gave my heart and soul to you, girl. Do not do it, baby. Do not do it, baby. This was just a just an unhinged episode of Tipping Pitches, Alex. But if you're listening along at home and you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a, a shout out on Twitter, on email, on Apple Podcasts, if you feel that strongly about it. Five stars are always appreciated. Alex, do you have anything left to tell the people about? I feel a little bad that we've kind of uh, we've let the ship sink on the Tim Tebow power hour. Uh, yeah. Yes and no. I'm... <laughs> You know what? I think I'll be rejuvenated for next year, certainly. But uh, <laughs> just taking some time I, for myself. I'm doing okay with that. You want to do it? You want to change it to like the Tony Kemp Power Hour, the yeah. Ryan Buchter Power Hour? I absolutely do. Okay. Yeah, we need a, we need to highlight more more players on the fringes. Uh, if you know Bernie Sanders' stance on the DH, please uh, please shoot us an email at tapingpitchespod <laughs> at gmail.com or DMS at tipping underscore pitches on Twitter. It's it's really the only thing that I care about right now, and it's probably how I'm going to decide who I vote for in this upcoming election. So so let us know if Liz Warren is a DH Dan. This might this might change everything. We will literally craft an entire. We sh- probably should just craft an entire segment around this, even if we don't. Yeah, absolutely. Know their actual answers. Yeah, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some investigative journalism this week and get back to you uh, next Sunday with some definitive uh, pro anti DH stances. You are a capital J journalist. You have been ever since day one, ever since that fifth grade interview of Jason Richardson. <laughs> Listener, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Alex's Twitter account a underscore Baisley and see the good good Alex in elementary school interviewing Jason Richardson, Warriors legend. That's my call to action this week. Other than that, thank you all for listening very much. We appreciate it. And we will be back next week. Off my list. Teams... Off my list, teams. <laughs> Can you imagine if someone was like, if some like, uh, like ninety three point seven like Oklahoma radio station or something was like, we heard your podcast, we love it, we want you to move to Oklahoma, 
We want you to do two hours live every day. <laughs> we would be fucked. We'd be so fucked. Honestly, no. That'd be the funnest shit ever. Because who the fuck listens to Oklahoma radio? That'd the be same, awesome. We have free reign. Like the same amount of people that listen to this. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Where do you want me to move? Omaha, Nebraska? Sick. I'll go to the College would, World Series once a year. Hell yeah. I would do it more often. I'd do it more than once a week. Let's do I let's, would do it every day. Let's do this five yeah, five days a week. I would be the drive time radio I was just about to say this. host <laughs> for Topeka, Kansas. If it meant that someone paid me to do the show. I totally get why like <laughs> that radio is so bad. Cause I'm like, I do this for an hour. And I take pauses and shit, and I I still struggle. (laughs) Imagine doing this every day. You'd be like, um, so, Tony Kemp. Yeah. What do you got on me? What do you got for me on Tony Kemp? (laughs) You'd be like, he's in the the minors. I'd be like, all right, Michael Brantley, anything. (laughs) Having a good year. <laughs> yeah. Run down rosters. I totally, I totally get why radio is the way it is. Why sports radio is the way it is. Yeah, you, you gotta entertain to, yourself somehow. You right? have to drum up controversies. Yeah, pretty soon to be like bad flips, bad or good. Go two hours. <laughs> You'd be like, uh, Bregman, pretty short, not dramatic tall. pause, not tall guy, not a tall guy. Where does all that power come from? Not sure. Steroids. I don't know. It's like a it's like word association. <laughs> yes, exactly. 